Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. I'm here with Haven Pell, who is the pontificator on social media and in his blog. We are in the midst of social distancing and taking care of ourselves, and so we're doing our podcast locked in our respective living quarters. We thought it'd be interesting to deal with the COVID-19 virus and how it's affecting businesses and how businesses are going to operate in this environment and then afterwards once we find a solution. Haven, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Day 26 of lockdown. Day 26. Ugh. It's almost like pre-running for retirement or something like that. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because I have sort of observed two things. One, how well the people that I talk to, like yourself, are just fitting right into the program and doing what we're supposed to be doing. But overall, it strikes me that compliance with recommendations seems unusually high to me. I have nothing to benchmark it against. It would just have been a perception. But it makes me think that we so often think about the absolute and we neglect the importance of the relative. People are willing to be at home because they think everybody else is. They're no worse off than anybody else. And they say, oh, okay, this is fine. And it was just a total sidebar unrelated to what we're going to talk about. But that was an observation. Sure. No, I, I think even in New York, where the numbers are drastically different and worse than the rest of the country, I think people are sort of hunkering down and settling in and understand that this is a longer process and that there are inconveniences. And I mean, one nice thing that I think has developed out of it is a real sort of rallying around the healthcare workers and a lot of the other service providers out there. The seven o'clock cheer that goes up now, I hope that's a tradition that, that kind of stays with us after we get better. Well, it's really interesting. I mean, the frontline healthcare workers, the word frontline, those sorts of things is now going to take its place with first responders from almost 20 years ago. Yeah, rightfully so. It's absolutely true. And they deserve all the accolades that they're getting and probably ought to be paid more. Well, let's get back to the, the task at hand. And we're trying to figure out how businesses are going to operate right now. Aside from sort of the seismic impact of the virus, where foot traffic is now theoretically down to a minimum and the ability to go out and generate sales is a lot different. The face-to-face -face meeting is different. How do we start getting our arms around what business is facing here? Well, I think maybe what triggered this discussion was something that I ran across the other day that was created by a group here in Washington called the Glover Park Group. And many of those entities are sort of a little bit muddy as to what they really do. They might be public relations firms. They might be sort of government relations firms. They might be lobbying firms. They might be all of the above. But in any event, the Glover Park Group is well known and well thought of in Washington. And they did a series. They did a 30 minute online caucus, they described it, in late March. So the impressions that we might be describing from a slide deck that they created are about two weeks old now. 
And it may be that some of those impressions are a little bit different today because a lot has happened. In any event, they gathered up over 200 people whom they described as news attentive and civically engaged voters nationwide. And they started asking them a whole bunch of questions about particularly how companies should look after their image and the perception of themselves at this time and out into the future. And it seemed pretty interesting and maybe worthy of discussion. One of the things that I came across was, again, a guy that I quote a lot, which is Scott Galloway, who does a lot of real interesting writing and thinking and podcasting himself. And he's a say, sort of a marketing thought leader, but he has a little section that describes crisis management. And one of the things that he really hones in on is that it's real simple. Number one, you acknowledge the crisis. You have to get that out there. Number two, the top guy or gal steps in and takes full responsibility. And then number three is overcorrection. You just overcorrect to the point where from a public relations standpoint, you're not left with any arrows unused, any resources unaccounted for, and you just overcorrect to the point of almost being ridiculous. I sort of thought about that a little bit in terms of our two major political leaders who've popped up in this, certainly Donald Trump, who I would say has sort of been pulled into acknowledging the crisis. He's up on stage theoretically taking responsibility, although his performances and his briefings kind of get a little bit goofy. And then on the overcorrection side of things, his steps on the economy look like overcorrection, but on health look like not quite correcting as much as many people would like. And I contrast that with Governor Cuomo here in New York, who has definitely acknowledged the crisis. He's been front and center stepping up saying, look, the buck stops here. And he has very much overcorrected on the side of health. And I think he's trying to figure out what to do on the economy side of things. But he's sort of letting that happen in his own sort of let the federal government start to take care of that a little bit more before getting New York to take care of that. Just an observation as well. I think it's interesting how that framework, how two different leaders who are addressing the same problem are both doing things along that framework, but in a little different nuance. Well, first, I wanted to, I was very much hoping that my mind would remember a point that I wanted to make. And that was something you said just a few minutes ago about number three in the crisis management. And that was actually one I hadn't heard before. And so I think that the idea of overcorrecting was a new one to me and I think is very insightful. So I didn't want to let that pass without saying that thank you for contributing that thought. It's interesting because both President Trump and Governor Cuomo arguably are in a situation that they can get blamed for. Not that they caused it, but that they weren't sufficiently ready for it. The rest of us, the companies that are being dealt with by the Glover Park Group, are in a different position. Their question is, how do they react to something external to them? Nobody's really saying that a big company caused this to happen. Well, with the possible exception of outsourcing the manufacturing of medical, of prescription drugs and so forth. But they're mostly being a fellow reactor along with the public. But the president and Governor Cuomo each could have fingers pointed at them. And, and they do seem to be taking a slightly different 
tack in terms of how they're dealing with it. And sadly, the response to those different tacks probably depends on whether you're watching MSNBC or Fox News. And it probably also depends on where you live. One thing that strikes me, I'm in sort of the epicenter of the U.S. portion of this viral outbreak, and the numbers are stark. The coverage is massive, no matter what channel you put on. I get the sense in other parts of the country that are maybe a week or two or maybe even further behind on that in terms of the effect, that this still seems like not that big a deal. And I think as a country, we're not quite on the same information curve, even though that information is out there and everyone is starting to really take the steps they need to take in order to stay safe. I agree with that. There's no question that there is a lag. It almost looks like the tide coming in. And the people that respond to the tide coming in are the people whose feet get wet first. And New York is absolutely there. And there are other places that don't see it on quite as stark terms. I think that there is one outlier, and that is a place that I left when I began about a month ago, my lockdown, and that is Blaine County, Idaho, the home of Sun Valley. And Sun Valley is absolutely at the front of the tide because it is at the front of the flow of travelers. And when you have lots of travelers, then you are going to have an early exposure to this situation. And places that have less travelers are going to be further behind the curve in terms of uh, feeling its importance. And the second shockwave I worry is that the rural areas, which eventually sort of come into broader contact with this disease, are going to be less well-equipped to deal with it. And uh, that may be the second wave that comes in once the initial reports start tamping down. To that end, let's go back to the Glover Park presentation, they bring up some interesting points. And I think the first major one that struck with me is that this is a really unique opportunity. I kind of file it in the quote, don't let a good crisis go to waste. But it's an interesting opportunity for businesses to shape their reputation and to shape their way of doing things going forward. And this brings up all sorts of issues related to trends related to ESG, environment, social, and governance standards, and what investors are looking at going forward. But talk about what you think about that, as this is a it's almost a hitting the reset button for a lot of businesses. And the ones that are going to survive and do well from a reputation standpoint, this could be a real opportunity. It's interesting because there was more than ambient pressure to focus on social good. Younger Workers, younger people who are sort of in their 20s and perhaps early 30s might be generalized into saying, what social good is my work doing? And companies have needed to adapt to that demographic because they need them to come to work for them and so forth. But I could imagine C-suite conversations saying, well, if we go too far, what are our competitors going to do? And are they going to somehow eat our lunch if we tilt too far toward this more stakeholder rather than shareholder approach to capitalism? So it might have caused people to be a little bit reluctant to move in that direction because you don't know what your competitor is going to do. I don't think you have to worry about the competitor anymore. I think that it is now pretty clear that at least according to the findings of this survey, 
that people are going to look at how sort of socially aware you are and how you are putting general outcomes ahead of your own outcome. So I think it's going to make it a lot easier to move in that direction and because the environment has made it sort of impossible not to. Well, and one of the things that the presentation and the survey indicate is that Americans say that they're going to really remember who stepped up and made sacrifices for the greater good. And I think coming on the heels of 10 plus years of market run up and lots of different scenarios where the news isn't all that great and you've got financial services firms, et cetera, that have some bad behavior, that it's a real opportunity for firms that are able to do it and able to survive to really step in and get engaged with their community, engage with these sacrifices and help out their workers, et cetera. Yeah. And I paused momentarily on that same observation about the importance of the long-term impact. And the reason that I paused on that was, is that something that would be top of mind on March 26th, on the day that this group was put together? And is it possible that the thing that would have been top of mind on that day might not remain top of mind for forever? And so I paused and I said, hmm, is that really going to continue to prevail? But let's imagine that it does and that it is a reset and it is at least turning the rudder on the oil tanker and moving it in a slightly different direction. One of the areas that I think the massive sort of stimulus responses have put forward is the idea that the role of government, the social safety net, paid leave universal health care, broader services. These are issues that are now front and center in the American psyche. And we're in the early stages of this where, again, we talk about government firing bazookas and howitzers and heat-seeking missiles to try to address these problems and create a floor from which the economy can work off of and at the same time protect the safety of the people. But a lot of things that previously weren't really being discussed, whether it's stimulus spending or higher taxes or role of government, are now back. And while Bernie Sanders just dropped out of the race, it feels like a lot of his ideas have actually been dropped into place and are going to be a big part of the debate come the election. I think that that's absolutely true. And it's interesting that this situation was such a huge contributor to his dropping out because there was he even before lockdowns began in mid-March, trouble had begun for him. And he was, if anything good was going to happen for his campaign, he was going to have to make a comeback. And of course, when you shut the game down, no comebacks are possible. But this has been something that has definitely brought front and center his ideas about the roles of different entities in society. And for the moment, I would say that his side was prevailing, leave aside whether he exaggerates more than he needs to. Thinking about the general good is a stock that has gone up. I would agree with that. And it's hard not to agree with it. I mean, I think the big key is whether people have the ability to, or more specifically, the businesses have the ability to engage this and afford it. You know, if sales are off 90% in a restaurant, it's tough to remain open, let alone contribute to sort of the general psyche and positives that society is looking for. 
going on to the next point that the presentation was discussing is sort of an interesting component where the support that a lot of these businesses are going to be receiving is going to be there's an expectation from the public that these businesses are going to, in a sense, repay what they've gotten in terms of goodwill. And if there are bad actions after that, there is a real capacity for punishment from the public. Yeah. The note that I jotted there was pay it back in behavior. And yes, the overall, the whole collection of us that reside, that are part of the citizenry or part of the population of the United States, including corporations and government and so forth. If you are going to receive something that helps you over a difficult time, yeah, you better be perceived to behave yourself pretty darn well going forward. And that's not the worst thing in the world. I think the idea that you can do what is sort of socially responsible or less Darwinian or whatever, if that can prevail so that you can do this without worrying that you will lose advantage to a competitor, overall, that seems like a good thing. That pendulum can move back towards the middle a bit, it seems to me. The next couple of points I'm going to group together because I think they relate, and that is many people are worried about the health and the economy, but are prioritizing the needs of those on the front lines. I think that everyone is starting to come around on that. In New York, we definitely are. We were talking before about the idea of it being a great tradition that at seven o'clock, everyone kind of claps for the first responders and the healthcare professionals and those frontline folks. I hope that's a tradition that continues. The second point that I'm grouping here is that Americans are really grateful to those people and that there's going to be a lot of different support and movement for them in their needs as they move forward from this exercise. And I think most specifically, I think kind of the everyone from the Amazon workers to the front line of retail to those people who have real face-to-face duties for people that are interacting with the public, I think that's going to be looked at through a different prism now. Just anecdotally, in days filled with not very many big events, the arrival of the mailman. It's an event today. I mean, four weeks into a lockdown, Tony, the mailman, appears, and we now absolutely routinely greet him, thank him for what he's doing, and (laughs) candidly, we don't receive very much mail. The junk mail is so far off that the Postal Service is in real trouble. And yet there is the nice mailman who is coming around doing his thing, and I find myself extremely grateful to him. Well, and it gets back to the delivery people here in New York, the different drivers and transit workers and so on. They're taking a huge toll health-wise, according to the numbers. And it's something that I think that, again, it's sort of taking things that we take for granted and, and advancing the ball a little bit and sort of reminding ourselves that they have needs too and that it's not a certainty that their jobs are easy or that they don't face dangers in their own right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, my boarding school roommate, his daughter is, I guess she's a fourth year resident at Elmhurst Hospital in Queens. Her residency is at Mount Sinai and Mount Sinai takes care of, has sort of adopted a variety of hospitals that are not as fancy as it is in the New York area. And so her residency is, or this stage of her resident program is at Elmhurst Hospital. And that is the epicenter. That's the one President Trump talks about is near where he grew up. And the 
descriptions of what she has to go through are just they're just breathtaking. And there was one situation, I mean, I suppose, let's see, a fourth year resident, probably 32 years old, maybe, something like that. And there was an article that was anonymous. I mean, it didn't say who the person was, but it was she. And a person came in already attached to a ventilator. And his prospects were not good. And she found herself thinking a thought that she shouldn't have as a doctor or she thought she shouldn't have, which is, I want to take this ventilator away and I want to give it to somebody else. Yeah. I mean, that's unbelievable. And those stories are just proliferating, especially here in New York. I mean, we're talking about folks that are just going crazy as it relates to having the right resources and the overwhelming of the staff and the different scenarios that are coming in. And with the disease really doing its damage to people with different preconditions, it's awful. And I think it's something that it's going to be another 9-11 type of event or a Sandy type of event for people who end up going through it. By nature, my inclination is how do you fix this? Whatever the problem is, how do you fix it? And I get in all kinds of troubles by being much more interested in how do you actually fix it than how do you appear to fix it. And it makes me wonder about the whole notion of what comes out the other side of could we begin to look at public health in a different way and get people to be more engaged in their contribution to public health by looking after themselves? And I was toying with the idea of some manner of health insurance that would require a monthly payment by everybody, but that the federal government would give poor people the money to make that payment. You would then be offered the opportunity to have a wearable device that determined how well you were behaving, eating too much, exercising too little, whatever it is, things that do not contribute to public health. And if you would be willing to wear this device, you could have your premium reduced, your monthly premium reduced, but your check from the government would not be reduced. So that you could say, look, I can go from $1,000 a month down to $600 a month and keep the other 400 if I eat well, if I exercise well, if I don't smoke, if I do all of these things, maybe we could have some impact on public health. And I'm wondering whether any of the healthcare companies that have not had an easy time of it from a public relations perspective could get out front of doing something that would be good in that regard. I think certainly is an option. It's one to consider. And I imagine the civil liberties folks might jump up and down on that one. And libertarians might be one area where the two unite and say, well, wait a minute. I mean, it's one thing to incent behavior. It's quite another to have a wearable device and you have some third party analyzing the data and therefore true. analyzing your lifestyle. All of that is true. And from a public health perspective, I mean, it's something I struggle a little bit with with Mayor Bloomberg back in the day. Lots of things that I like about him and the policy that really I see both sides of it so much that it paralyzes me. The first one is the soda ban where it's like, yeah, well, I knew that was coming. If I want a two liter bottle of soda and I want to drink it, 
I should darn well be able to do it. Last I checked, we're still in America. Yet at the same time, the level of obesity and the level of diabetes and other health issues related to sugar and soda intake and so on, I don't know how to fix that. And there's two sides of me that just get tugged on both ends. And I end up just saying, I don't like the idea of the soda ban for 50 reasons. And I don't like the idea of people just unable to police themselves as far as diet and exercise. It's a, probably a big reason why there's as many deaths as there are is that there's lots of different issues related to diabetes and obesity that this COVID virus really attacks. But the bill comes due somewhere and there are sacrifices that have to be made. So I'm not quite sure where I am on that yet. And it's something that as I get older, I'm sure my thinking's going to evolve, but it's an interesting point. Think about the notion of being told to do something. You are ordered not to buy 64-ounce drinks when you want them, okay? And I completely tilt right over to the how dare the government say that. I get it. Now think about making a choice yourself. The 64-ounce drink isn't worth it enough to me. It's like these ads that we see where automobile insurance companies are putting trackers on cars, if you want it, and they are willing to rebate some of your insurance premium if the tracker on your car is showing that you drive safely. So you have an incentive to not speed, to not swerve around and whatever can be measured by your car's tracker because it puts money in your pocket. Now you are making the choice instead of someone else making the choice. Does that do anything different for civil liberties arguments? Intuitively, it seems like it does, but probably not enough. I mean, there are plenty of advocates for freedom and civil liberties and so forth that they're going to figure out a way to find fault with it, even if it might be something that would, again, just nudge progress in the right direction. So we'll get back to the last five points here on the Glover study. Two of them are going to group together again as tactics that I think that Americans want to see in communication and style coming from businesses. The first is that they want to see businesses be deeply empathetic to people's plights. And I think this is even more than normal. And the second one is to remember that it's not just business as usual and therefore don't communicate that way. I, my suspicion is, and I certainly have seen it, a lot of people are struggling with how to communicate with people who are cooped up and working from home or not working at all or worried about their next paycheck. And to see a standard sort of email blitz saying, buy this pair of shorts or have you checked your car insurance lately, that that tone deafness will be penalized. I would also argue that after a certain point, people are going to start getting real tired of hearing the word coronavirus and they're going to want to get back to normalcy, but I'm not sure where we are on that curve yet. <laughs> well, my guess is that your inbox in your email probably looks kind of like mine. And that is pretty much everyone you've ever done anything with. Anyone who's got your email address, Europa car, Hertz, Airbnb, you name it, just to think of the travel industry, whoever has your email address is now sending you emails endeavoring to be responsive to that particular strategy that you just described perfectly. Those get old. Do you read them anymore? No. Oh, yes. We're thinking about we're working from home. We're washing our hands. We're doing all sorts of things. But 
public relations can be done ham-handedly. And I think that there is some of it that is being done ham-handedly. And whether it is going to make people say, well, maybe I didn't really want quite so much of that. But certainly everybody's trying to be perceived that way. Well, that leads us to the next point, which is as a business, identify what relevant capability or area of expertise you can deploy to play your part. And the Glover people sort of really summarize that interesting saying, you know, Americans really want to root for that business that is sort of taking lemons and making lemonade or using that ingenuity or really participating in capitalism and entrepreneurism when the chips are really down. And I think in some ways, an interesting example of that is Zoom, which sort of was the little brother of Skype for a little while. And then all of a sudden, this work from home phenomenon has taken off and it went from, I don't have the exact numbers correct, but I think it was from 10 million users to 200 million users. And people have adopted it wholesale and it's turning into a real success story. And just as a further aside, there's a lot of complaints about Zoom security being breached. And I look at it and I said, let's step back here. They went from 10 million to 200 million users overnight, basically. And to be able to scale and survive that is amazing. Now the idea, I think, is to probably step back and invest a ton in securing those different outlier problems. But you've got a new company that's born out of the ashes of a real disaster here and really one of the real bellwethers of going forward for the economy. Potentially a major game changer. If there were to arise, imagine your area, New York City, and imagine the terrible commuting problems that you have there with the trains and the roads and the tunnels and everything. Suppose everybody, every single person who commuted to New York only came to work four days a week and did the fifth day from home. You have an immediate 20% reduction in traffic. Now, it might not distribute evenly over the five days of the week, whatever, you could try to work those things out, but let people have a choice of, you may come to your office four of the five days. And the fifth one, it's now all good enough. Everybody's doing the same thing. You work from home. Imagine the impact on the roads, the tunnels, the trains, the subway, all of that. I mean, that 20% is the part that those things are not equipped to handle. If suddenly commutes went from an hour to 40 minutes because you dropped 20% of the traffic, that's a game changer. It leads to all sorts of things included in that driverless automobiles. If you're that much more productive on your way to work when you're actually going, you could find another 10 or 20% of productivity in there. All of these things, I think that's such a universal experience for people. I think the it opens up the receptors for change and the really good entrepreneurs and the really good idea people behind social change on this front, I think, have a gigantic opportunity. It's always seemed to me that the people who politically favor, for example, the business community or, for example, government, it has always seemed to me that the wrong people are criticizing those institutions. It seems to me it's not the people who would prefer government to business or the people who would prefer business to government. Those are not the people who should be criticizing it. It's the people who favor one side or the other that should be looking at their own side and saying, how do we make this better? And I think that there's an opportunity. I mean, I don't have 
nearly as much of a problem as some people do about what the business community does. I think it generally is pretty good. It could use some help from time to time. And boy, I hope they use this as an opportunity to show themselves to be more a part of the collective than they have been perceived to be in the past. I think it's going to do them a huge amount of good. This leads to the second to last point that they bring up, which is passing the loyalty test. And this is really sort of Glover's way of saying that people who are sticking up for their employees, sticking up for their customers, sticking up for their vendors and their communities, they really have the chance to create that brand loyalty in the future. It, it reminds me of City National, which is a bank based out in Los Angeles. And one of their major storylines was that Frank Sinatra was a client of City National and his son apparently got kidnapped and he was able to withdraw the money he needed for the ransom at all hours of the day. And then that one incident essentially built that institution because everyone in the Los Angeles area heard that story and said, you know what, I want to be a part of that. And that's what they grew off of. And this is the same type of thing. Those places that said, look, I dug into my pocket, CEOs who are giving back pay, the sports teams that are keeping people hired on, even though there are no events running. It's those types of things that are going to be building that brand loyalty in the future. And I think it's an interesting lesson for those businesses that are able to really take advantage of it. That's such an interesting thing. I had not ever heard that story before, but it shows, it seems to me, a pattern that had been going on actually for maybe a couple of years where publicists and people who were thinking about public opinion and so forth started to really talk about telling stories and that that's what people remember rather than discussing your policies or discussing your earnings or whatever, but telling the story of, for example, a mid or low level employee doing something heroic and putting their picture in an ad, that that creates more loyalty than the drier and more businessy or whatever things that one might normally say. So I think that the opportunity for even more vivid storytelling is going to come out of the situation. The final point here on the Glover study, which is something we've alluded to, I think, in the last nine points, but they talk about remembering the lessons of 2008. And a lot of that, they'd made the point that in 2008, it really drove populism and that the divide between the haves and have nots really became acute at that point. And the politics really drove left and right in a very polar sense. And that Americans, with the passage of this stimulus and people putting scale around the numbers that we're talking about here, that those industries and constituencies that benefit from this, they had best figure out how to sort of take advantage of that trust, but be able to repay that back to society. And that failure to do so might not just be sort of missing an opportunity, but it might be signing your own death warrant in many ways. I hope they take that seriously. Like you, I have spent a great deal of time in the finance realm, and I do understand why it was important to keep economies alive and keep the banking system alive in 2008. But it sure was easy for populists to say they bailed out the banks, but not the people. And so I hope that the people who are important and who should be kept going during this period of time, because the economy is going to become important again, it's not over, 
and they need to be there. But I hope it isn't as easily politicized as it was 12 years ago. Well, and the thing we have to watch out for is that there are some industries that have really suffered a heart attack here, and other ones, if their cash balances were okay, are probably going to snap back fairly quickly. But I look at the restaurant industry and some of the retail industries. I mean, the restaurants here in New York, I don't know what it's going to look like, but I wouldn't be surprised if 40% of them closed their doors. Now, maybe the landlord community is going to allow them to absorb a few months of rent, which is all the difference in the low margin industry like that. But I don't know. I worry about that. And for people in that sector, the impact of what's going on here is going to have an outsized impact compared to, say, banking, where I think a lot of banks have the cushion and they're well capitalized and they're able to withstand these types of things where they'll be able to sort of muddle through for a little while and then get back to running as things normalize again. I hope that there's just an appreciation with that above and beyond what we discussed before with the healthcare workers and the sort of frontline responders here. It sure would be a bad time for a stock buyback, don't you think? No, I think that's a tool that you keep in the shed for a little while. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, just one little anecdotal thing, I'm sure just like you, I pay a lot of bills online. Pretty much everything is electronic, not much check writing and so forth. So you can schedule those payments. And I find myself thinking about who's the recipient. And I want to make sure that some people who might have a struggle are going to be around when this is all over. I don't want them to go away. So I move up the payments to those guys. And I want to make sure that they can be paid on the first possible instant, whereas other people, I might schedule a payment for 15 days later. And there are so many people And I think this is true in the restaurant world where people are trying to use their favorite restaurants for carry out and so forth. And they're trying very hard to be supportive if they can. I'm trying to here in New York and it's rough. I'm not quite sure how a lot of these places are going to make it. But I think that that's probably true. But at least maybe it's just feel goodism to think, well, maybe if I order out from my old friend at such and so restaurant, maybe it'll keep him afloat. Maybe it won't. But at least you're trying. One last point before we sign off. I did a poll on Twitter where I threw out the question, June 15th, earlier or later? Oh, an over-under. Over-under, basically, that you would be able to eat at a restaurant in New York. And I was surprised at the results. I guess I wasn't surprised when I thought about it a little bit more, but maybe being here in New York, I had a different lens on it. 85% said it would be later, and 15% said it would be earlier. So maybe I chose the date poorly, but I tend to think that there's going to be a lot of pressure to be able to open up restaurants if it looks like the death toll and the curve are becoming more and more managed. And we're at sort of early to mid-April right now. We've got another couple of months. I'd be interested to hear what you think about that. I think it's terrific and good for you for using Twitter to do it. What a great idea. I have, as you were describing your poll, I was thinking of what my answer would be, and perhaps we can exchange answers. I'll tell you that I would have voted on the later side, and maybe you'd like to say how you would have voted. I purposely picked June 15th because I thought that would be around the date when it might hit (laughs) because I was trying to get it to be 50-50 like any good Vegas casino would endeavor. And I was way off because it was 85 later, 15 earlier. 
there's something in me that seems to think it's going to be earlier. And I'm not saying there's going to be widespread and that every restaurant is open, but I think there will be some that will open. And I just tend to think that there's going to be pressure, not just federally through Trump, but also through New York. This really assumes a lot in terms of safety, which me not being a virologist, I have no idea what I'm talking about. But there's something non-scientific and more of an intuition that tells me that it would be earlier. Here's another variable. Let's say it's open. The restaurants are open on whatever day it is. Do you think you are going to feel comfortable going there on the first day? Great question, because a couple people commented on that in the Twitter poll. And I guess from my perspective, I assuming sort of the typical letter grades that are outside restaurants hold and you hope that everything is sort of clean anyway, I guess I'd be sort of willing to try it on the theory that if I've been in New York City for well over a few months in the coronavirus epicenter that I've probably developed either some sort of immunity to it or that it's pushed on. But I don't know. It's a great question. Or that somebody has made a really good decision. This is the time that this thing should be open and there's no ancillary considerations. This is what should happen. Now let's get on with it. And that is entirely reasonable. And there we are. But I do think just as we were discussing earlier how the reaction to closing things down has a lag in some parts of the country. We were I think we talked about it as the when the tide comes in, there are some people who get their feet wet first. And there's a lag of people who don't recognize that this is as much of a problem as it is in New York. I think that there will be a lag in coming back. You're probably right. I can see just from the people I talk to and so on that it's going to take a little while for people to shake hands again, if ever. Absolutely. It's going to take, I think, for instance, the conference business. When people fly to Chicago or Newport Beach to go to an investment conference, I think that's going to take a long time to get back as people sort of look at the value of certain things and whether they want to put up with the travel and then getting together with crowds. The lag to getting back to normal may be just as long as it's taken people to get acquainted to our current normal. For sure. I mean, I think that that's entirely reasonable. Cool. Well, we've covered a lot today. Let's end it there and we'll get ready for the next one. Stay safe and healthy and keep your social distancing up and running. (laughs) Yeah. Great to chat with you, Fraser. I really enjoyed this conversation and look forward to the next one. Cool. Take care, Evan. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.